Well, welcome from wherever and whenever you are watching from. If it is a Sunday morning and you are watching this live stream, we have journey guides, and hopefully you've had a chance to pick one up. If not, they look like this, and we'd encourage you to swing by Element and grab one this week. Uh, They are out in the little kiosk where we put the kids' lessons in there, and if you have kids, you get kids' lessons too, but we are starting this whole thing on the book of Job today, and we want to get journey guides into everybody's hands. So we are doing this whole thing together. In the middle of the message, I'm going to put up a slide. It's going to have a question on it. During that question, you can pause the live stream, get some coffee, get something to eat, take care of your kids if they're going a little crazy. Answer the question, maybe just with the people who are around you or with yourself. If you have a journey guide, you can answer that question in your journey guide too. And then hit play and then we'll keep going on with the rest of the message. If you have a smart device, you can download an app. It is called Uversion. When you open Uversion, click on more and then events and we will come up by GPS in your smart device and you will get the sermon notes, questions, announcements, verses, everything that goes with today's message. If you are not in our local area, type in the zip code 93455. We'll come up and you will get all of the same. My name is Aaron. I am one of the pastors at Element. If you're so inclined, you can stand with me for the reading of God's word. And this is Job chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. And it says this, Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretched out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, today we ask that you would take us and teach us to be a people who understand what we profess and what we believe, that we would be those who understand better who you are, and also the ability to trust you no matter what comes into our lives. Teach us to be a people who truly and really understand what we say we believe. Amen. All right, so we have started this new series today. You probably heard this a gazillion times at this point, as I already said, on the book of Job. It is going to be eight weeks long in total, and we are calling it a Lent journey. Now, a Lent journey is all about reflection, and we believe it's good for us to reflect upon what God is doing in the world, what God is doing in us, who he is calling us to be. So that's what we're going to do, because it's not just about our current circumstances. It's looking at our entire lives and what God is doing in our world and our lives. Now, I did a Lent journey with you a few years ago through the book of Lamentations. Uh, Lamentations is another book in the Old Testament that is kind of depressing. It's, it's a bunch of poems. And by the time we finished that, my mom was like, thank goodness that's over. I was so depressed. Now, our goal in this Lent journey is not to depress you at all. It is to help us to understand the goodness of who God is, who we are in the midst of it, and then move us towards a celebration of this thing called Easter. Now, what we're going to do during this Lent journey, uh, starting next week, not this week, we're going to ask you to think of something that you can give up for the period that we're doing this Lent journey. You know, for me personally, I'm going to give up this thing called sugar. You may have heard of it. Uh, everybody on our staff seems to have stolen what I was going to give up, but, but that's okay. Uh, and I, after every single meal, I just want a cookie or something like that. And what I'm going to do is not go eat a cookie. When I have that craving for sugar, I'm going to think about God and what he's doing. And I'm going to pray and hopefully start to re-steer my life and understanding where he's leading me during this time through our Lent journey. So what I want to do is briefly explain this thing called the church calendar as we get going today. Because the early church, what they did is they tried 
tried to build rhythms into the life of the people so that they'd be walking forward in rhythm with one another. And so this is what this kind of looked like. You would have a thing called Advent. Advent would start four weeks before Christmas, and it's about the coming of Jesus. So you'd spend this time thinking about Jesus coming in the flesh. Then that would go into, like I said, Christmas, or what's called Christmas Tide. And that would go from Christmas Eve until 12 days later, which was January 6th, and culminate at this thing called the Feast of Epiphany, or the showing forth that God has come in the flesh. Now, some uh, churches will actually celebrate a short little season called Epiphany right there. Others won't, but Epiphany is about that idea that Jesus has come in the flesh. So after Epiphany, there'd be this thing called ordinary time. And I know you're thinking, my entire life feels like it's just ordinary time. But the word ordinary comes from this word called ordinal, and it meant the counted weeks, that you are counting the weeks until the next season. And the season after that would be Lent. Now, the word Lent comes from this old Latin word, which meant spring, because that's typically when Lent would end at Easter in the spring. Uh, Sarah Phillips writes about Lent. She says, Lent is an intensely penitential time as we examine our sinful natures and return to the God we have through our own rebelliousness hurt time and again. Lent is also an opportunity to contemplate what what our Lord really did for us on the cross, and it wasn't pretty. But ultimately, the purpose of Lent does not stop at sadness and despair. It points us to the hope of the resurrection and the day when every tear will be dried. So when you think about Lent moving forward, Lent is going to go into something called the Triduum and Easter. The Triduum is the Friday, Saturday, Sunday of that week where Jesus died, was in the grave, and then rose again. And after Easter comes another season of ordinary time. Now, we at Element don't normally do liturgical church calendars in any way. But because COVID has gone on so long, a lot of people are feeling separated from Element. And one of the things we thought we could do is have us all go through this journey together. So we're all walking in the same rhythm with one another. Uh, if you have kids, they're going through the same things that you are with their, with their boxes as you go through your daily devotions and write down your journal stuff. All of Element moving forward in the same direction as we study this together because it's meant to bring us again together. Now, a normal Lent journey is six weeks. Ours was going to be seven, but we added an eighth for Easter because Element doesn't know how to do anything short. And as I said, it's going to be a time of reflection about ourselves, our good God, uh, where Jesus is ultimately moving us into. And during this time, we are going to talk about Job and Satan and Job's wife and Job's three friends and a guy named Elihu and most importantly, God himself as Savior, as Redeemer, as Revealer, as Lord God Almighty. So if you have a Bible, you can open your Bibles to Job chapter 1. And what we're going to start with is Job's so-called perfect life. We almost called the entire series The Perfect Life, but it really only starts out chapter 1 that way, so we couldn't really make the whole thing go with that. But anyway, when you meet Job, you're going to see him in a spot at the beginning where everything in his life is just going smoothly. It's like the happily ever after. You know, that's where you you meet him. He is really just living the dream. Uh, He goes to church. He loves going to church, so it's pre-COVID. He's he's probably a deacon and elder in that 
church. He's got some good kids, got a vacation home, got a thriving business. He's an all-around good guy with loads of friends. What more could you ask for? And most people, this is the goal that they want for their life. This is like the quote-unquote American dream. And this is why a lot of authors have asked this question, that if you attained all of that stuff, if you attained the American dream and got your vacation homes and your kids were all happy and great and raised well and all that, but you didn't have a relationship with Jesus, would it all be worth it? Now, when you ask that question to people in churches, they always say, oh, no, it, it wouldn't be worth it at all if Jesus wasn't in the middle of it. But really, one of the things that we do as a people is we tend to use Jesus to try and get those things for us. And when Jesus doesn't give us the things that we think we want, we think God has somehow failed. Too many people who call themselves Christians or have maybe called themselves Christians in the past and walked away from God, oh, I tried God and he didn't work, their biggest complaint is how God didn't come through the way that they wanted them to come through. Or they look at some place in the world and they said, if God really existed, well, that wouldn't happen over there. We hold up this ideal of what we want and we say, God has to do this thing. And if God doesn't do this thing, either there is no God or God has failed. And the problem with that logic is in the end, who are we worshiping? We're worshiping ourselves. That's who we're worshiping. And so what you'll see in the book of Job is you will get one of the clearest pictures of who God is. And this will actually take more place as you get towards the end of the book. You will also get a very clear clear picture of what humanity is. You will also get a very clear picture of who the devil is, this being that we call Satan. And I know to our modern vernacular and modern ears, when the church talks about the devil, it sounds so foreign because we have movies and TV shows. And when you think about the devil, it's, ah, he's got a pitchfork and he's, you know, throwing people around the room and doing all kinds of crazy stuff. When you see Satan in the Bible, his name means accuser. And when you see what he does, it actually makes a lot more sense and it's not so scary and weird. What the accuser does, what Satan does, is he goes before God and he will say, Job or even us today, we only worship God because of how God has blessed us or blessed Job. He makes these accusations against us that say we don't really love and follow God for who God is. And are those accusations true? Well, yes and no. It seems to be pretty true in a modern American church mindset, you know, in our view of Jesus. This is one of the reasons that Element, we're always trying to get you to get a bigger picture of who Jesus is and what the gospel really means. Because the reality is, when our lives fall apart, like Job's life is going to fall apart, that's when we find out what we truly believe. It really is. It's, we find out what we believe, not just about ourselves, but what we believe about who God is is. Uh, Last week, one of the last things I said in my message was that in the desert is the place we find out we really love God just for God. And when everything's get stripped away from us, do we really love God just for who he is? So the accuser, Satan, goes to God and says, Job only worships you because of what you have done for him physically and monetarily. Now, God knows Job's heart. And so what's all taking place here is to help, I think, all of us to read and see what God is doing so we could trust him more. Uh, Job chapter 1, verse 11, Satan says to God, But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. Now, You have to understand that God doesn't argue with Satan here because it's not that kind of relationship. Instead, what God will say is, and it's pretty scary, Job 1 verse 12, And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. 
And when the accuser goes out from the presence of the Lord, he will reap destruction in Job's life. Job will lose his business. He will lose his children. Many people see this and they're horrified because they think it sounds like uh, God and Satan are playing a chess game and Job's a pawn in the middle of it. But if that is what you see, you don't understand the beauty and the grace of this book. Because this book is written in an ancient culture, one that we have a very hard time understanding. But it's written in a way that these people, and so we could also understand the asymmetrical relationship that God has with suffering. Now, you may not understand what that means, so I'm going to explain it. We are meant to notice here that it is the accuser's idea that all these bad things are going to happen to Job. It is not God's idea. Satan will try to get God. Oh, why don't you just touch his life? And God doesn't do that. In the text himself, God will not work to actively generate Job's suffering. See, when God made the world, he made it good. It wasn't a place of disease or disaster or death. Now, disease and disaster and death are in the world, but again, God doesn't make them. Many times the result of what we released in the world, when we rebelled against God, when we ran away from God, everything begins to unravel. And on the one hand, you see that God is not actively desiring or deliberately or intentionally creating this suffering that goes into Job's life. Satan's doing it. But, and this is a big but we have to understand, God is in absolute control. He is in absolute control. There are a lot of people in the world today who see like yin-yang and good and evil and God versus Satan as these gigantic powers and they're warring with one another and, oh my goodness, who's going to win? Again, that's where movies and TVs kind of take us with all this stuff. But that is not how it actually is. God is in total control. God overrules the evil. And God here will permit Satan to go out and do these certain things. He permits it. God says, behold, all that he has is in your hands. The NIV will say, very well. But then what God will do is he will limit it. He will say, you can do this, but you can't do that. You can do this, but you can't touch Job's person. He is in total control. Now, some people then ask, well, why did God even allow this? Uh, Tim Keller wrote this lengthy article about the book of Job and these verses. And this is what he said. He said, God only allows Satan to accomplish the very opposite of what he wanted to accomplish. He only gives Satan enough rope to hang himself. What is Satan trying to get from all of Job's upcoming suffering? Is that Satan wants Job discredited. He wants Job exposed as a fraud. So we can say, see, God told you told you. In the Bible, one of the clearest pictures that you will see is Satan is not God's enemy. He is ours. Nothing can stand up to God. And the accuser knows all too well who God is, that God is holy, right, and true, that God is good. Satan knows this much better than we do. And what you see is the accuser doesn't accuse God of all these evil things. What he does is he accuses us before God, our sin, our guilt, our shame. And what he does then is he accuses us to our own hearts of our sin and our guilt and our shame. And this is one of the reasons that Jesus goes to the cross to rescue us. So that we, as a disconnected people who have run away from God and who have done most of the things Satan says that we have done, can finally have victory over Satan's true accusations about who we are. See, the accuser has this hatred towards, towards God's image bearers and the love that God has lavished on us. 
And do you realize that when we run from God, when we accuse God of evil, when we put ourselves in God's place, when we think God isn't as good as he is, the devil doesn't say, oh yeah, God's stupid. What he says to God is, I told you they weren't worthy, that Aaron, that Donald, that Michael, that Pete, that Marianne, that Paul, that John, that Manette, they aren't worthy of your love. He is not God's enemy. He is ours. God hates evil. He is against evil. He didn't create a world in which evil existed, but he permits it. Why? Keller in that same paragraph says this. He permits Satan only to bring evil into Job's life in such a way and in such an amount that it completely defeats Satan's real intention. See, the the accuser is only allowed by God to actually defeat himself in the end, to bring about the very opposite of what he wanted. And yes, this is going to bring some painful circumstances into Job's life. But in the end, God is intended to have the opposite effect for what eventually happens to Job and for our lives as well. And many times, God works in our lives this way. There's hard things that come into our lives. But God hates suffering and evil, but he's in control. That's asymmetrical. It is not an issue with God being unable to stop it. He permits it, but that doesn't mean that he enjoys it, that he relishes in it, that he enjoys the way that people suffer. But again, he permits it. So right here, I'm going to ask my question for you today. And it's not going to be one of the ones in your booklet, though if you want to, you can write your answers down in the booklet. Uh, but my question is simply this, and this is kind of where we've been for the last year in this journey I'm intending for us to take with the whole idea of COVID. And that is, what questions have you had for God during this year, during this whole COVID thing? And is there any places that you have questioned his goodness in the midst of it? And it's okay to answer that question honestly if you have. Maybe some people haven't. But many times in the midst of pain and hardship, we question God's goodness simply because we don't understand it. Now again, as I said, God permits evil and suffering to come only to the degree that it actually defeats the accuser's intention for us. God's intent for us through everything is to grow to be more like him and his son. And we now sit a few thousand years removed from everything that happens in the book of Job, and we are still talking about it. We are still talking about what we can learn from it. At the end of the entire book of Job, Job has all these questions, and God doesn't actually answer any of Job's questions. Instead, what God is going to do is show up to Job, and he will show Job who he himself is in his person, in his character. Job doesn't get all the answers, but Job gets to see who God is, and that will teach him to trust God even more. I mean, God doesn't even say, hey, you know what? For the rest of human history, people are going to go through hard stuff, and they're going to look at your circumstances and what you went through, and they're going to learn how to deal with these painful circumstances because of what you went through. He never, ever says that. Now, Job's friends will come along, and they will have all sorts of reasons why what's going on in Job's life. And we're going to look at them during these weeks. But they will give Job's all these empty answers. They'll give him moral ones that says, well, you're suffering because you did something wrong. Another of his friends will give him these empty platitudes, which never touch Job's suffering. Another will say, well, you're an idiot, and you must deserve that. that that's what your problem is. Job's wife just plays the fatalism card and will say, you know, curse God and die, because she's so uplifting. We're going to put her on the self-help circuit, that Job's wife. She's so, so great. None of them actually know why Job is suffering, but because they're uncomfortable, they're just trying to throw reasons at him. And none of those things help Job, and many of their answers are just plain wrong. And where the Bible calls us to is where it calls Job to, to trust and serve God, even though many times we do not have the answers to what's going on this side of eternity. 
And I think really when we see God face to face, we're not even going to really care about all the questions we had because we're not going to be so concerned about ourselves anymore because we're going to see the glory of who God is, which is what God showed Job throughout the course of the book. And just like Job never knew the actual reasons for his suffering, sometimes we won't either. It's not that we can't ask, but sometimes we won't know. One writer says this, We are being invited to hold on to the mystery while being in a relationship with the God we can't control. So with all of that as my preamble, let me read to you the worst day ever recorded. Uh, this is Job chapter 1, starting in verse 13, and it says this. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabians fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. What, my donkeys and my oxen are dead and all my workers are gone as well? This is terrible. Verse 16, while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. So fire from God fell down from the sky and burned up all my workers and also then took out all my sheep? And, and again, you have to see, God didn't send the fire from heaven, Right? But that's how people perceive it when bad things happen. Verse 17, while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone escaped to tell you, all my workers and my camels are gone? Verse 18, while he was yet speaking, and this is the worst one, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Now, when you see things like this happen, they would also blame that on an act of God. You think your Monday was bad? How is this? I mean, even millennia removed from this, I can't even really make any jokes about it because it's still too soon. Sometimes when we suffer, people just want to start to give us answers. But we really don't want answers in the midst of our suffering. We just want to suffer and have people come alongside us. Now, when we start to move past the suffering a bit, that's when we start to ask for answers. And when we get to that place, many times we think, well, if I just knew the reason why, well, then I would be okay. Like if you knew a thousand years from now that how Starbucks messed up your coffee this morning and gave you 2% instead of soy milk, and now you're going to have stomach problems all day, you know, it's like, oh, but if you knew a thousand years from now, people read that story about Starbucks messing things up, and they would learn how to be more loving and gracious, you might be okay with that. But there are so many hard things that come into our lives. A relationship that dissolves, a loved one who dies. Sometimes on the backside we think after our suffering, if I only knew. And sometimes we want to seek and serve God only for the answers that we will get. And I'm saying not that we shouldn't ask or, or seek answers, but if we're only serving God to get answers, we're not really loving God for God himself. We need to be a people who trust him, even if we get nothing but the grace that he promises us, because that grace is really everything. It's like we talked about last week. Do we love God just because he is God? Someone runs wrote this. There can't always be an answer to the why question given to you, or you will never become the kind of person suffering can make you. 
See, the accuser, the accuser comes here, and he, and he comes to God and he accuses Job. Job doesn't really love you. He's just using you. And if you look at how the accuser does this, this is what he does throughout history. He does this to Jesus when Jesus is being tempted in the wilderness. You go all the way back to the beginning of humanity in the book of Genesis. He's like a one-trick pony. This is all he's got. In the Garden of Eden, he says to humanity, God doesn't really love you. He doesn't really love you. He isn't giving you everything you want. Oh, that tree of knowledge of good and evil. Yeah, what a mean God. He won't let you eat the fruit off that. How terrible is he? Now again, Satan knows God better than we do. He knows God is good. This is why he doesn't accuse God of not being good to God's face. He accuses God of not being good to us, to get us to think God isn't good. And so often we believe it. And when we believe it, he goes to God and says, see, your stupid people are at again. Uh, Keller had this great line in that article. He said, when Satan said bad things to God about us, even there was some truth in them, God didn't accept it. But when Satan said bad things to us about God and there was no truth in it, we believed it. See, we have this lie that's given to us today that says, if we fully entrust ourselves to Jesus' care, if we love like he calls us to love and forgive like he calls us to forgive and reconcile like he calls us to reconcile with one another, well, we can't really and we won't ever really be happy because you can't really trust God. And that's a lie. That is a lie. Let me give you the idea of where the scripture is going to eventually take all of this because this is something Job didn't actually see. And when we talk about these idea of the accuser and Satan or the devil, again, it sounds very foreign to modern readers and modern hearers. But let me lay this out for you. Because Satan accuses us before the Father. And when he accuses us of things, he is mostly right. That we are pretty bad people. That, and we don't get to blame the devil for all of our issues. And so there is an accuser that has been accusing us of our sin. But we also have an advocate with the Father. Let me read this to you. This is 1 John uh, chapter 1, verses 8-10. through 10. John says this, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His word is not in us. See, it is very hard for us when the accuser accuses us to simply say, Yeah, Uh, You're right, that's who I am. We try so hard to make ourselves not look or seem unworthy. We want to believe that our mistakes are not as bad as they are, that deep down we're actually pretty good people. But John says, you know what, you have to understand who you are apart from what Christ has done. That we are a sinful people and all these accusations against us, again, are mostly true. But what happens when we're like, okay, that's true. What do we do? First John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, John talks about us being little children and then says, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So this is the understanding that God, yes, he testifies to the sinfulness that is in us, but he will also testify to the graciousness of who he is. He has told us that he so loved the world that he did for us what we can never do for ourselves. Jesus, God in the flesh, lived the life that we were called to live, but we never, ever did. And then he dies a death that we were condemned to die. And by so doing, takes our death upon himself and puts our death away forever. Now, I talk about this in our gospel class, and I talk about it on Sunday morning sometimes. You've probably heard me talk about this before. But advocate is a legal term referring to someone who would argue your case before a bar of justice on your behalf, on your side. So what you have is you have the accuser saying all of these things about us, but then we also have an advocate. 
And normally an advocate would argue for your innocence. But our advocate knows that we are not innocent. This is what John says, just come to terms that you're not innocent. Then an advocate would say, well, maybe you shouldn't punish them because of extenuating circumstances and they're a much better person than they were than when they did this thing. You've got to understand, our advocate doesn't do any of that. Jesus is never going to argue for our goodness. What he's going to argue is his substitution, his righteousness in our place. He does not argue our worthiness. He argues his, that we may not be worthy to be forgiven, but he is worthy to forgive us. And this is ultimately where our hope comes from when we have all these accusations, that Jesus is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. John didn't say that God is merciful and kind to forgive us our sins, though God is merciful and kind because that is why Jesus came. The basis of God's forgiveness is justice. It's not mercy. And Jesus paid the full penalty for our sins. Not an ounce of judgment remains. And when the accuser sits there and says, look at this, look at this, they're guilty, they're guilty, they're guilty. And God says, yes, they are guilty. But Jesus paid for that sin himself with his life so they don't have to. Jesus does not appeal to mercy on our behalf with God the Father. He appeals to justice because he has satisfied all the claims against us. And this is why the gospel is good news. We don't have to hope we are forgiven. We can fully say, yes, this is who I am, and this is where I've fallen, and this is where I have messed up. And we know we're forgiven because Jesus paid the penalty for us, and it has nothing to do with our own worthiness, but the worthiness of our advocate Jesus, who now stands in our place. And when Satan comes into our life and accuses us, look at what you did, look how terrible this is, look at the rotten thing you did there, we can say, yeah, It is. We just own it and then point to Jesus and say, but Jesus forgave me and he loves me and I don't want to be that person anymore. And all that you're accusing me of has been taken care of by Jesus himself. That's where we get to point. And it's not that the accuser isn't accusing. It's that Jesus is our advocate who took our sin upon himself. Now, in the book of Job, all this suffering comes up. And his friends are going to say, oh, it's because you did something wrong or this or that. But how does Job respond when this happens? Job chapter 1, verses 20 to 22. It says, then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. Tearing your clothes, shaving your head, that's a sign of anguish. You don't even know what to say. But Job falls down and worshiped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. He doesn't blame God. He doesn't curse God. He worships God because he understands that that God has been good to him. He understands that no matter what happens in this life with his kids, that God can still hold his kids in his more than capable hands. Job doesn't go to try and find a better sacrifice to try and appease God. Job doesn't go and try and do it better. He simply falls down in the midst of his loss and he worships the only one who has truly ever had or held him. He knows who God is. And honestly, for me, I don't know how Job did it. I I really don't. Because Job has this depth of trust and he doesn't even see or understand all the things that have happened in the counsel of God. He doesn't understand the things that we even know today that Jesus actually came. I mean, for us, this should make all the difference for us because we do know something that Job didn't. We know that God came in the person of Jesus as our advocate to rescue and save us. See, when when Job is suffering, Job is someone who is only kind of relatively innocent, I suppose. Like, we don't know all the places of struggle. But when Jesus comes, he was the truly ever 
only innocent sufferer. This is why his perfect life can be given for us. You will see later that Job will eventually feel abandoned by God himself, but he wasn't. I mean, you can read ahead in the book of Job if, if you want to do that. But Jesus on the cross, when he dies for our sin, he is separated. He is the only one who has actually ever experienced this profound separation so deep that we will never understand it. And he does it for us because he loves us, not because we're great, but because his love is so great. Jesus gave up everything to rescue us from the rightful accusations of our accuser that we have run from God that we have spoken lies about God and one another. We have defamed God's character. We have put ourselves in the place of God. We have questioned God's goodness by so much of what we say and do. And we are a people who stood condemned and should have never experienced God's faithful graciousness, and yet we do. God comes in the person of Jesus to do for us which we could not do for ourselves. He pays the overwhelming debt in order to set us free so we can truly experience life again. Why does Jesus do it? Because he loves us. Two years ago, we went to this series called The Reason for God, also by Tim Keller, who I keep talking about. But one of the things he says in this is that Christ's suffering for us is proof of Christianity's uniqueness, and it's proof of Christianity's truth, and it's proof that only Christ has the ability to truly speak into our suffering. See, what Satan tells us about God is a lie. Because Jesus, in human form, was willing to love us and bring us back to himself. Jesus doesn't get anything out of it. What does he get? He gets rebellious little sons and daughters, you and me. Jesus already had all the glory. He had all the angels worshiping him. And so he loved us because of who he is. And he calls us to himself because of who he is. And so we must become a people who love him for himself. And this is what you will see will happen throughout the book of Job. Job will eventually get to this place where he understands God's better because of God's graciousness to him. And when we look and understand Jesus, we understand God's graciousness to us. And that Jesus suffered not so that we wouldn't suffer, but that when we suffer, we could become more like him. And I do kind of want to end uh, with a question for you today, understanding all that stuff, because you're going to have a lot of things as you walk through your journey guides this week to answer questions about Job and his suffering and all of that. But I really want to ask a question that's kind of important for all of us. And that is, what have you lost in your life? What have you lost? And if you are someplace and you haven't felt like you've really lost anything yet, I don't know how to say this, but I'm sorry, but it's coming. <laughs> it's coming in some place. And when that happens, will you trust Jesus or not? I mean, Satan says, stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. I mean, God didn't do that, but Job probably thought that God was doing it. How will we respond when we feel like this is what God is doing in our life? Will we trust what God has done for us? Or will we run to something that is less than him? Will we run to a substance, a relationship, or a job, or something to try and make us feel fulfilled? Or will we truly trust who God is in the midst of who we are? And this is why what we are doing in this series... At the beginning of it, we're, is we're asking you this week to start to think about something that you would give up over the course of this journey. We're not asking you to give it up today, but next Sunday on the 21st. So you've got a week to think about it and to pray about it. And when you start to come around, when you start craving that thing that you've given up for the six weeks that we're doing, you know, that center part of this journey, every time you crave it, 
Go back to the place where you remember God's goodness spoken over you. Jesus as our advocate who has rescued us. And maybe there's accusations that the enemy will throw at you during this time. And you get to remember in those places to say, no, you know what? I I am guilty of these things. And yet... My Redeemer has rescued and saved me and paid for all of that stuff. I don't have to question whether I'm forgiven. I know I am because of what Jesus said and did. And that's one of the things we want you to think about during you know, the coming six weeks as we begin to give something up. I mean, one of the reasons I say this every week that Element does this thing called communion is it's meant to be a reminder of what Christ did for us. Like you take the cracker and you break it or bread and you break it and you dip it in wine or grape juice or drink wine and grape juice. It's meant to be a reminder of what Christ did, that his body was broken and his blood was shed to pay the penalty for our sins. And this is something we do every week on a Sunday. But, but having this thing that we're going to give up for this Lent period is a way to almost every single day remember what Christ has done for us. It's a way to put ourselves in a mindset throughout this series to see the goodness of God no matter what comes our way and to be a people as a church walking forward together in a rhythm together, loving and worshiping God simply for who He is. So let's be that people. And if you need prayer, if you're in a place today where you've been wondering about, you know, what do I give up, or I don't know what to do, or can someone pray with me and kind of walk me through this a little bit, and you would like someone to contact you, we, we would love to do that. Uh, send an email to connectedourelement.org or prayeratourelement.org, and someone will get in touch with you, and we'll talk with you and walk you through some of these things. Um, if you, during this time, would like to connect with maybe some other people and ask some of these questions, we'll try to connect you with other people as well. Uh, again, there's, there's questions every day as you walk through the journey guide, but there's also a section at the end of it that's meant to be where a, where a gospel community or a group of friends or a family would gather together and start asking some of these questions after you've kind of gone through the week and dealt with all the, the personal things and then come out and then talk about these things together. It's a way to help us all move forward together. You know, what we have to understand is that our God has been so good to us. Our God is a giving God. It's one of the reasons every week Element talks about giving. Because we are meant to be a generous giving people as our God has been generous to us. And I think by the end of this series, hopefully we'll have all these things kind of culminate together in our minds. Of God's goodness, of God's sovereignty, of God's grace, of God stepping and walking through with us in all the hard places and all the hard times. To bring about on the other side the glory that he intends for himself and the goodness that he intends for his people. We need to be a people who understand that God is sovereign and God is good and to worship Him and trust Him in all that we do. So we're beginning this journey, guys. Let's do it together, and let's worship God together. Let's pray. Uh, Father, I ask that You would move us to a place this week as we start thinking about and praying about maybe something that we could give up, that when we crave that thing or look towards that thing, it would steer us back to understanding You and Your great love for us, Your sacrifice for us, Your call in our lives that we then maybe would step out in other ways and serve one another because You never save us just so that we could make a little club that say, hey, we're a club of saved people. What about those? You send us out into the world to be Your hands and feet, to be Your ambassadors. So teach us to be those people in what we say and what we do and in the things that we give up, then ultimately how we think and the things that we begin to crave and that our lives would begin to crave you and the understanding of your great love given to us and that when the enemy comes up and accuses us of things, we don't have to deny it or run and hide from it. We can simply say, my life is in Christ's hands and his righteousness covers me. And we can trust you because of what the good news of the gospel brings. 
Teach us to be a gospel-centered people who live out in your goodness and grace and who worship you just like Job did in all circumstances and places. And we ask this in your son's good name. Amen.